There's this old episode of The Twilight Zone called A Penny for Your Thoughts that came to my mind this week as I was working on the sermon. The opening monologue to that episode by Rod Serling goes like this. Mr. Hector B. Poole, resident of The Twilight Zone, flip a coin and keep flipping it. What are the odds? Half the time it will come up heads, half the time tails. But in one freakish chance in a million, it'll land on its edge. Mr. Hector B. Poole, a bright human coin on his way to the bank. Hector B. Poole uh, is played by the marvelous actor Dick York of Bewitched fame, if you remember him. And in this episode, he plays this very sensitive and very, very, very insecure bank employee. And on to the, the way to the bank where he works, he flips a coin to pay for a newspaper, and the coin actually lands on its side. And in that moment, because it's the Twilight Zone, Hector can now hear what people are thinking. Now think about that. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be able to hear what people are thinking? Can you imagine being able to know what is going on inside someone's brain, to know what is going on inside someone's heart? Well, Hector B. Poole soon realized that it wasn't that great. I won't spoil the episode for you. Sometimes we function like Hector B. Poole, don't we? We think that we can overhear the conversations inside of other people's hearts. And if we begin to believe that we know for sure what is happening in other people's hearts, we start having monologues in our hearts where we convince ourselves that we are right And then we begin to act on said monologues. We begin treating people based on what we think is going on in their heads as if we somehow know what is really going on. And living that way will destroy every relationship that we have because we're assuming that we know what people are thinking, we assume that we know what is actually going on inside a person's heart. And so what's the answer to this sinful problem that we all have? I have this problem. How do we stop having monologues in our hearts? How do we stop having conversations in our heads with other people? Do you ever do that? Do you have conversations in your head with other people? Well, if they say that, I'm going to say this. And if they reply with that, then I'm going to say this, and I'm going to put them in their place. You ever have conversations in your head with other people? Like maybe when you're driving to work or brushing your teeth? Well, if they say that, I'm going to... You ever do that? You ever have conversations in your head, and your magnificent words with the person that irks you totally shuts them down, and they bow to your wisdom? Do you ever have conversations with other people in your mind where you always come out on top? Do you ever have these long monologues where you listen to your so-called wisdom? Listen, Grace, the reason I've been able to explain it so well is because I do this all the time. How do we stop this? And how do we stop stressing about the future, the unknown, How do we deal with our deep-seated insecurities that drive 
everything that we think, say, and do. Well, for starters, we have to quit listening to our own thoughts. We have to stop believing in our own wisdom. We have to stop buying our own heart propaganda. How do we do that? We have to get low before the Lord. We have to humble ourselves. We have to get low before the Lord. And listen, that's a great place to be. To get low before the Lord, to get low and humble ourselves before Jesus, our Savior, the one that we love. That's not a bad place to be, is it? I think we fear that, we don't want that, but that's where the healing is. That's how all this nonsense in our hearts stop, is when we get low before the Lord. And what a great place to be. We have to believe what Jesus said. To take him at his word when he said, Come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest. Not retribution. Rest. Not what you deserve. Come unto me and I will give you what you deserve. He doesn't say that. Come unto me and I will give you rest. In my opinion, those are the most remarkable words ever uttered by a human being. They're the most incredible and wonderful and awe-inspiring and breathtaking and quite simply the most flabbergasting words ever spoken by a human being. Jesus said these words in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said those words. And Jesus says these words. Jesus is speaking these words to you and to me today, right now. I mean, what an invitation from God. What what a welcome from the God of the universe. Come unto me and I'll give you rest. I'm not going to give you what you deserve, I'll give you rest. This is the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus offers rest to weary sinners, people who are exhausted from life, exhausted from parenting, exhausted from politics, and who isn't exhausted from that? And we're not even in 2020 yet. Exhausted from social media? It's no fun anymore. Man, Twitter used to be fun. I hate Twitter now. I still get on because I'm a sucker for punishment. But man, remember when social media was great and you're like really connected with people? It stinks now. It smells like sulfur and fire, which is where it's headed. And King Jeroboam desperately needed these words from Jesus. Actually, he had a form of these words. He had a promise from Yahweh that we saw back in 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to look at that later. But Jeroboam forgot this wonderful promise that he had from the Lord, from Yahweh. And it totally shaped the course of his life. He quit listening to God's word and started listening to his own words and the monologue that he was having in his own heart. And it became his downfall. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 now. And while you're turning there, maybe you need these words from Jesus this morning. Maybe you're stressed out. Maybe you're worn out from worrying. Maybe you're depleted this morning from being so stressed out over what's happening in your life. 
Maybe you're exhausted from relying on your own strength and your own wisdom. That is exhausting, isn't it? When we try to predict and control our lives, it's exhausting, isn't it? To be a control freak is exhausting. Let me say that again because there's some control freaks in this room. To be a control freak is exhausting. It's not refreshing. And it's no way to live as a Christian, as an adoptive, adopted child of God. It's no way to live. Maybe you're just beat and you need some rest. Jesus promises to give you rest this morning. You can leave here today absolutely refreshed simply by taking Jesus at his word. You can leave here today and if someone asks you, how was church? You can say, it was like green pastures, man. It was like still waters. I I left simply refreshed. I mean, doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what you're looking for in church every week? Who wants that? Who needs that this morning? I know someone who did, King Jeroboam. And because he didn't take God at his word, he totally ruined his life and the life of the nation of Israel. As I was working on the sermon this week, I felt like we needed to slow down and just look at and hover over verses 25 to 27. Now, of course, the entire paragraph goes together, but I felt we should just slow down and focus on what was happening inside Jeroboam's heart, which will then lead him to do what he does in the rest of the paragraph. Since Jeroboam will function like a mirror for us today, I felt we should slow down so that Jesus can begin healing all of us of our deep-seated insecurities and deep-seated fears. Because that's no way to live, right? The problem about us that we'll see in these few short verses is that fear and anxiety and worry and insecurity can plague our lives and that's really no way to live as God's children. Because Jesus has set us free. The answer to our deep insecurities and fears is found in Jesus and the rest that he offers us. So 1 Kings chapter 12, look at verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And so here is where we are as we make our way forward through the rest of 1 Kings. God's people have now been split in two. There are now two kings, the fellows that we saw last week. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is king of Judah in the south. And Jeroboam, the guy we're going to look at today, is king of Israel in the north. And so moving forward in the narrative of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it switches back and forth between this broken family, God's people. And King Jeroboam's first order of business as the new king of Israel was to rebuild the cities of Shechem and Penuel, very significant cities in the history of Israel. They were already in existence, but Jeroboam reinforces them. Shechem's central location and access to trade routes in all directions made it a key piece of property for Jeroboam. But it was also the places we saw last week in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1, where Rehoboam, king of Judah, had his coronation ceremony. 
So it's possible, as we'll see in a moment, that Jeroboam's insecurity led him to establish his kingdom in Shechem, the very place where his rival Rehoboam was coronated and crowned as king. Understand this. King Jeroboam was a very insecure leader. He may have built up the city of Shechem just because this was the place where Rehoboam was crowned king. You see, it was all a competition for Jeroboam. Ministry was a competition for him. He was desperately insecure, as we'll see in a moment. And that's a terrible characteristic to have as a leader. More on that in a moment. And so on the surface... Jeroboam seems like he's off to a good start. I mean, you, you rebuild two major cities that are a part of your heritage, that significant events in the, the nation of Israel have happened here. So it's a good thing. So far, things are good. But verses 26 and 27 come along and show us what was happening inside Jeroboam's heart. Jeroboam was extremely insecure And that's not a good thing for a leader. So now, look at verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So see, here we see inside the heart of Jeroboam. His main worry is not to recapture the essence of Israelite worship. His main concern is not to be the moral compass of the nation and lead them in honoring Yahweh, which was his job description as king. Rather, Jeroboam is concerned with his own security. It's his insecurity about his security. It's his insecurity about his future that is destroying his present. And this will be his downfall. Jeroboam is worried that if the nation of Israel continues to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple, then they would eventually turn back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam is worried that if his citizens travel to Jerusalem to worship, then they will see billboards that have pictures of Rehoboam on them. And they'll think, ah, we want to go back to King Rehoboam. They'll hear stories about how a great lead, what a great leader Rehoboam is, how the people love him, and this will cause the people to want Rehoboam as their king. And so Jeroboam is so insecure, he fears what will happen if his own citizens go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the temple, which is what you were supposed to do as an Israelite. I mean, think about it. How sad King Jeroboam fears what his people will, th- will think or do when they go to church. He fears that an ordinary trip to church, an ordinary trip to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh at the temple, he fears that that would be his downfall. That his stock would fall in the eyes of his people. And as if that isn't bad enough... Jeroboam's thoughts then lead him to believe that not only the nation would want to switch teams, but that the nation would actually try to kill him. And so how did Jeroboam get to this place? Jeroboam got to this place simply by having a monologue 
in his heart. Jeroboam got to this place simply by listening to the voices in his head, by replaying scenarios that weren't even real. This isn't even a real situation, and he's replaying these scenarios in his mind that aren't even real. And he got there by not listening to the promise that God had given him through Ahijah the prophet back in 1 Kings chapter 11. So let's make a few observations here. Number one, Jeroboam is concerned in his heart about what is happening in other people's hearts. Jeroboam is concerned in his heart about what is happening in other people's hearts. Listen, you can never know what is happening inside somebody else's heart. You and I can never know what is happening inside someone else's heart. We can't. And we try and guess, don't we? We actually think that we can see inside another person's heart and guess their motives for why they do or don't do something. And then we assume and come to conclusions that might be false. How arrogant of us. And we all do it. We're all Jeroboam's. We can all be Hector B. Poole and think that we, we know and can hear what's happening inside someone's heart. Please don't think that you know what is happening inside someone else's heart. You may be wrong. And then you may treat them differently based only on your hunch. That's what we do because we're sinners. We think someone is doing something or not doing something based on our own wisdom. And then we begin to treat them differently. And it's not based on facts. It's just based on a hunch. Take Jesus, for instance. He did everything right. He was perfect. He was sinless. Jesus never sinned. Not even as a teenager. And yet people completely misunderstood him. They made judgment calls about him, assuming, what they, assuming they knew what was going on in his heart, and it was absolutely untrue. This shows us that even if you do everything right from the purest of motives, people may still misread your heart. And so I have an idea. Let's be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt to one another. How about that? That'll change a church culture. Let's be a church that says, we're going to give the benefit of the doubt. I just read it this morning in 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things. Love believes good things about other people. Let's be a church that doesn't assume that we know what is going on in a person's heart, why they do what they do or don't do. So can we covenant together now, right in the middle of this sermon, And agree that we will do our best as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to not be like Jeroboam. Let's covenant together now, shall we? Let's recite this together, okay? On the count of three, the bottom part. One, two, three. By God's grace, we will do our best not to assume what is happening inside someone else's heart. That'll change a church. That'll bring revival to a city. 
When Jeroboam rises up in your heart and you think that you know why someone is doing what they're doing, simply tell Jeroboam in your heart to shut up. Ray Ortland says, human eyes are not competent to judge human hearts. Human eyes are not competent to judge human hearts. We simply can't do it. But when we function like this, it actually kills our relationships. And so understand this, Grace. Insecurity kills gospel flourishing in a church. Insecure people hinder the advancement of God's kingdom. Insecurity kills gospel flourishing in a church. Why? Because insecure people are obsessed with their own kingdom. They're always worried about what others think of them. Always trying to get people to like them. Always living in the fear of man. Always having conversations in their heads. And they kill relationships because they treat people based on what they think is going on and what is happening in other people's hearts. I mean, that kind of stuff will slow a church down. That kind of stuff will will cause a church to stall out. Why? Because insecure people are not living for God's kingdom. They're living for their own kingdom. You know, Insecure, the word comes from, anytime you stick the letters I-N or I-M on a word, it's a negative. So it means, in means not, not secure. We say God is immortal, he's not mortal. Insecure people are not secure in their identity in Christ. John Bloom says, at the root of insecurity, the anxiety over how others think of us is pride. This pride is an an excessive desire for others to see us as impressive and admirable. Insecurity is the fear that they won't, but instead they will see us as deficient. So how do we keep insecurity from killing gospel flourishing in this church? The ultimate solution to my insecurity, to your insecurity is this. We must abandon all of our attempts to find our worth in anything other than Jesus and what he has done for us. The solution to your insecurity and to mine, we must abandon all attempts to find our worth in anything, the approval of people, anything. Find our worth in anything other than Jesus Christ and what he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. We have to abandon all of our efforts to receive worth and value from what other people think about us or what other people say about us. We must root our identity in Jesus and in his magnificent, redemptive love, his life, his death, his resurrection, and all the benefits that we receive from him because we are in union with him by faith. Now, Of course, because we're sinners, we won't attain some kind of perfect, settled, once and for all confidence in Jesus that completely eliminates insecurity. That won't happen because we're sinners. But that's one reason we have the Lord's Supper, so that we can bring our sins and failures to Jesus and receive his grace, which we'll do in a moment. We have to cling to what God says about us rather than what we've been conditioned to think about ourselves. 
We must cling to what God has said about us in the gospel rather than what we've been conditioned through these patterns in our life, rather than what we've been conditioned to think about ourselves. This is where King Jeroboam went wrong. He didn't believe what God said to him through the prophet Ahijah. And this is where we can go wrong. When we begin to believe the monologues that we have in our heads and hearts. As Christians, we belong to Jesus now, and this is the most important thing about us. As Christians, we belong to Jesus now, and that is the most important thing about us. And that means then that even when we can't sense our security and identity in Christ, our actual security and identity remains unchanged regardless of what people think about us. Our security and identity in Christ remains unchanged. It is secure regardless of what people think about us and regardless of whatever sins that we do. Our security in Christ remains. Listen, if you suffer with insecurity, and who doesn't from time to time, right? Jesus welcomes you and he wants to transform you. Jesus loves to comfort People who suffer with insecurity, who have been plagued by people-pleasing their whole life. Jesus loves to comfort the insecure person, put his arm around them and love them. People who live in the fear of man, people who are exhausted from trying to get people to like them. Jesus comes and puts his arm around them and tells them, it's okay, relax, you are loved And you are accepted and you are secure. You are perfect in my eyes. It's going to be all right. Jesus says to those who are suffering with insecurities, come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest from trying to please people. Rest from the fear of man. Let's be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt in our relationships. Let's be a church that shuts down sinful heart monologues. Let's be a church that gets low before the Lord and humbly accepts his favor and humbly accepts and receives his promises. Let's be a church that finds our security and our identity in our relationship with Jesus in being in union with him as his adopted children. The second thing that we see with Jeroboam is Jeroboam's worry and insecurity led him to some crazy conclusions. The nation will turn back to Rehoboam, and then they'll kill me. That's what worry will do. It will start with something simple and then lead you to some crazy conclusion. For instance, if you lay in bed at night and worry or stress over something, where does it lead you? Maybe it's your job. Maybe you're worried about whether or not your company will stay afloat. Maybe you're worried about losing your job. Maybe you're worried about downsizing. or Maybe you didn't do some report or file some paperwork or something, and so you worry about what your thought boss thinks of you. And then you begin to worry that you won't get a raise at your next review. And then that leads you to being fired, and then you can't pay your bills, and then your house is in foreclosure, and then you're homeless, and then you starve to death and die. Do you see where you can end up just after five minutes of worry? It all started with the thought of worry, a thought of worry about what's happening at your workplace. And the next thing you know, your house is in foreclosure and you're homeless and you starve to death. 
And all it took you to get there in your mind was five minutes. That's it. Five minutes later, and you're dead. <laughs> King Jeroboam did the same thing. Jeroboam was worried about what would happen in the future. What would happen when his people went up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. But he should have anchored his hope in God's word. Remember, he heard the prophecy from Ahijah the prophet in 1 Kings 11. The Lord promised Jeroboam a kingdom over whatever his soul desired, promised that he would be with him. Listen to those words, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 37 to 38. The Lord says to Jeroboam, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam had God's word. God said, I'm going to do it all for you. Will you believe? Walk in my ways? He had a promise from God that God would be with him and that God would build his kingdom. He had promises from God's word. And so do you, Christian. Let me share one with you now. Luke 12, 29 to 32. Jesus says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's a promise straight from the mouth of Jesus to you today, right now. Jesus just said that to you. Don't worry. Fear not. Believe. And there's another promise that Jesus says to you in his word. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Some of us here really need to take Jesus at his word, to just rest, to relax, to fear not. Everything's going to be okay. And believe. Listen, stress and anxiety and insecurity and fear and worry are not of the Lord. Jesus does not want you and me to carry these burdens. And so here's some good news for those of us who struggle with stress and anxiety and insecurity and fear and worry. And who doesn't? Jesus doesn't despise us or shame us for struggling with these things. Jesus doesn't despise you because you struggle with insecurity. Jesus doesn't shame you because you struggle with insecurity and worry. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, man up and get over it. He comes to us and he invites us to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. Listen, if I told you some of the things that give me anxiety, you would laugh. Heather laughs a lot, like, really? <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm not going to do that because my stock will go down in your eyes. But the things that plague me, I have a strong foundation in my wife who comforts my heart with the truth of God's word. Listen, Jesus is the burden lifter. He wants our burdens. He actually wants us to come to him and unload all that is weighing on our hearts. He will sit and listen to us ramble on and on and on 
That's what it means to come to Jesus, to unload on him, to just pour your heart out. Like, like a kid on Halloween. What do kids do on Halloween? They just come home and they, they dump out all their loot all over the living room floor. And then they start you know, going through it and looking, ooh, I like this, ooh, I like that. Ooh, who gave me a toothbrush? You know. They just pick and sort through it. And that's what Jesus wants us to do, to dump all of our problems all over the living room floor. And he will sift through and pick up each one. All of your cares, all of your burdens, all of your frustrations, all of your fears about the future. When you come to Jesus and you just dump it all out, he sifts through it. He picks up each one, each burden, each care, and he says, I will carry this for you. I will help you. You do not have to worry about a thing. Stop biting your nails. Stop worrying. I am your kinsman redeemer, and I will personally take this on as my own. Your care is mine. Your problem is mine. Your burden is mine. Don't you long for a Savior like that? You have that Savior, and he longs for that too. He wants to be that for you. It's why he came. It's why he sent you an invitation that says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Jesus is looking for those people who labor and are heavy laden. You know what that means? It means Jesus wants the real you, the one who has been laboring and the one who is heavy laden. Jesus wants the real you, not the social media you. Not the social media you. Listen, we all know that's fake. Can we just admit that? Your perfect family, we know that's fake. That's a sham. That perfect meal... You took five minutes to like set it perfectly. We know that's fake. Come on. Jesus wants the real you with no filters. When you come to Jesus, he says, come unto me. Hashtag no filter. He wants the real you, the messy you, the damaged you, the angry you, the bitter you, the worried you, the I am so sick and tired of trying to please people and gain their acceptance and approval you. The my kids are driving me crazy you. The my parents are driving me crazy you. The my spouse is driving me crazy you. The that person at church, at work, in my neighborhood is driving me crazy you. He wants the real you. He says, come unto me, hashtag no filter. Jesus wanted King Jeroboam to bring all of his insecurities, all of his fears, all of his worries, and unload them on him at the temple. Jesus wanted Jeroboam to believe his promise that he would be with him and build his kingdom for him. Jesus welcomes people with baggage just like Jeroboam and all his insecurities. He welcomes people with baggage just like me and you. He welcomes people with issues, people who are messed up, people who just can't seem to get their act together. He welcomes people with a past that still haunts them. He welcomes people who are greeted each morning with a list of regrets. And so Jesus is inviting all parents who blow it and feel like they aren't doing a good job. He's inviting parents who have regrets and wish they could go back and raise their kids better. He's inviting husbands and wives who at best are just functional roommates. He's inviting people who secretly or maybe even outwardly wish they had never gotten married. He's inviting singles and divorce. He's inviting teenagers who are struggling. 
Is he writing young people who are trying to find their place in this world? Old people, middle-aged people, people who are confused and lost and feel hopeless and just want to die. He's inviting people like King Jeroboam who are absolutely frightened about their future and who are scared to death about what might happen. But understand this. Jesus does not give himself to us in any way that we come up with. He doesn't let us use our imagination. Jesus is not letting us come up with the rules on how we experience him. Jesus has made himself knowable and accessible in specific ways of his own wise choosing through the very ordinary means of grace, in particular for us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus has come unto me, my people, and here's how I will communicate to you the benefits of my redemption. Through my word, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, and through prayer. When Jesus has come unto me, he gets to determine who he is. Jesus doesn't say, come unto your idea of me. We have to come to Jesus on his terms as he has revealed himself to be in his word. Not according to our own imagination. Not according to our own ideas about who we want him to be. We have to take Jesus at his word as he says he is. Jeroboam didn't do that. We'll see that next week. Jeroboam's fear and insecurity and anxiety led him to come up with his own ideas about God and how God could be worshipped. He totally disregarded God's very clear word. And Jesus has made it very clear in his word who he is and how we can access his grace. And one of the ways that we come unto him and access his grace is through the Lord's Supper as we celebrate communion with him. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Not what you deserve. Rest. What an invitation. What a welcome. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus offers rest to weary sinners. Charles Spurgeon said this about Matthew 11. Come unto me, he says, and I will give you. You say, Lord, I cannot give you anything. He does not want anything. Come to Jesus and he says, I will give you. Not what you give to God, but what he gives to you will be your salvation. I will give you. That is the gospel in four words. Will you come and have it? It lies open before you. Jesus said these words because he knows that we need rest Rest in every area of our lives. We need rest from trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn his love. We need rest from trying to please people. That's so exhausting, debilitating. It'll drain your joy in the Lord. We need rest from our paralyzing insecurities. We need rest from trying to do it all and be everything for everybody. We need rest from trying to predict what is happening in other people's hearts. We need rest from assuming that we actually know why people do what they do. Rest from assuming that we are wise enough to know people's motives. We desperately need rest from all these dangerous heart monologues that we conduct where we only converse with ourselves. Heart monologues will destroy you. People pleasing will kill you. And so what we need more than anything these days is rest. True rest. And Jesus offers that to us because he is our rest. 
Our country needs rest. Evil is alive and well. Two mass shootings in the last two days. We need Jesus in this country. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Not what you deserve, not payback, but rest, forgiveness, mercy. Perhaps you say, Lord, I cannot give you anything. Well, guess what? He doesn't want it. He doesn't want anything. He doesn't need anything from you. Come to Jesus and he says, I will give you. Not what you give to God, but what he gives to you. That will be your salvation. I will give you. That is the gospel in four words. So let's take a moment and pray an RSVP to Jesus' invitation this morning as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Ray Ortland said, the message of repentance is not stop that. It's Jesus saying, come to me. The message of repentance is not Jesus saying, stop that right now. It's him saying, come unto me. Let's do that now. Jesus, we come to you this morning because you have sent the invitation to us. It's real. And we want to take you up on that offer because we all need rest. Forgive us, Jesus. We're so sinful. We don't even know how sinful we are. David calls it evil in Psalm 51. How many of us would call our sins evil? How many of us would call our heart monologues evil? Oh, that's hard to hear, Jesus, but it's true. Would you forgive us for living for our own kingdom and not for yours? Wash us. Cleanse us. As we come to the table, we come as messed up, broken people, sinful people, rebellious people. But we come because you said come. And so we're going to take a moment and pray, but we're going to celebrate your grace, Jesus. We want to leave here refreshed. We want to encounter uh, green pastures as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. We want to encounter still waters. We want to leave here refreshed because you do love us and forgive us. So help us to repent this morning. Help us to remember that repentance is just renewing our wedding vows with you, the one we love. So that can't be a terrible thing. And then may we leave here today refreshed and renewed in your love. We ask you to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.